Good morning. This is lesson 11 in our series in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'm sorry for my lackluster title, High Priest and the Great High Priest. I actually had a title that I thought about, and, and that is The Priest's Proper Attire. But I was afraid if I put that out before I preached, it all leave. <laughs> Knowing what a great expert I am on fashion and such, that probably wouldn't have been a good call on my part. So we'll, we'll leave the lackluster title for now. I think I've told this story before, but this took place probably uh, 30 years ago um, at Believer's Chapel. And... and uh, I was going to speak, and and just before uh, I stood up to speak, one of the elders uh, was introducing me, and and he had been exercised because that week a particular preacher in Dallas had been heralded as the silver-tongued orator, and there was a whole bunch of stuff in the paper, and it just really got to my brother. He just had trouble with that. So he felt like before he introduced me, he had to say a word or two about that, and so he, he made a point of the fact that it isn't the preacher and it isn't their eloquence and all of that. It's really just the Word of God. So when I stood up to speak, I, I said, Thank you, brother. I think I can interpret what you meant. Here's old Bob. He's not much, but he's all we've got. <laughs> and I couldn't help but think about that in relationship to Aaron. Somehow Aaron is just not my idea of your first choice of a high priest. I've got too many visions in my mind about him. We'll come back to that in just a second. As was mentioned this morning in our worship time, there are some themes that follow through the book of Hebrews. One is the good to better theme. Our Lord is better than the angels, Hebrews chapter 1. He is better than Moses, chapter 3. Uh, he has a better hope, a better covenant, better ministry because of the new covenant. There is that theme that flows all the way through Hebrews. Then there is that theme we talked about this morning from shadow to substance. And by that you see in the Old Testament these sort of shadowy pictures of things that we're going to see in their full-blown form in the New Testament. And uh, there's much of that in the book of Hebrews. In, uh, there's also the, the change that we're seeing here from the Aaronic priesthood where you see the Levitical priests and, and the high priest and so on coming from uh, Aaron to the priesthood of Melchizedek, the better priesthood. And that's the theme that's being introduced and it's going to be a very dominant theme, as you know, from basically chapters 5 through chapter 10 we're going to look at that whole element of the high priestly ministry of our Lord. But I want to start with Aaron because he's, he's sort of the, the baseline, or so it would seem, and I'm going to ask the question, does clothing make the man? Um, and and I, want to, uh, I want to suspend judgment on that a little bit. You will notice that in, in uh, Exodus chapter 28... There is extensive a description of the clothing of the priest. And in Leviticus chapter 16, there is as well. So I went out and I found a Jewish website. And I'll actually put the, I think I put the URL in your notes as well so you can go look. But I thought you'd be interested in this because that hasn't really been a fascination with me. 
the high priest's clothing, the, the one that will be to your left in white is the clothing that he would wear on the Day of Atonement. And the uh, front and rear views on the, on the right-hand side, middle and right-hand side, would be the more uh, ornate uh, uh, ornament, uh, uh, um, dress that he would wear as a part of his uh, priestly ministry. Notice the picture of the high priest. It's probably not one of the best you could get, but it's, but it's not a bad representation of how he would look as he's, uh, as he's all decked out. And then you see in the, in the next frame the remembrance stones, those 12 stones on which would be engraved the names of the uh, tribes of, of Israel and the two onyx stones that he would wear where you have six tribes on each one of the stones that would uh, remember all of those Israelite tribes. The Urim and the Thummim is, is kind of a puzzle to us, but something that he wore... Uh, there which would in some way indicate and, and give direction as to the will of God in particular instances. And then the turban and the crown that you see uh, pictured there that he would wear on his head and uh, the robe which was made of blue and you'll see in the next frame uh, the bottom of the robe where you have the little pomegranate things and, and then the bells so that the bells would ring as he was uh, moving from one place to another within the, the uh, tabernacle in the pursuit of his duties. I have to say that uh, our daughter and husband are, uh, are staying with us from Houston for obvious reasons, and they brought, there, there's now only four, but there was uh, five at the beginning, and each one of these little kittens has a bell around their neck. And in the middle of the night, you hear all this activity going on, and I thought, as I was thinking about the priest, I was thinking that's kind of the way it was with him. When he was doing his work, you knew where he was, and that probably was not a bad thing. And this, uh, this information, those pictures, came off of the uh, templeinstitute.org uh, website, and you can go out there and, and learn more. It's kind of an interesting uh, site. But my problem with Aaron is that there are just too many things about him that I remember that make it hard for me to visualize him as a high priest, at least one that you could cling to. Uh, There is the incident of the golden calf that just looms large in my mind. Uh, He was a, a priest in that instance with this idol that he had fashioned doesn't, it doesn't really seem that he would be ideal as the high priest after that incident, but indeed he was. I apologize for your notes. I only caught this typo or, or, or glitch in my memory. I call those Lot's sons. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember, were the ones who offered strange fire and died, which didn't exactly bode well, I think, either. And then you remember the rebellion of uh, Aaron and his sister Miriam uh, against Moses by saying, you know, who do you think you are to be the head cheese? Uh, God listens to us as well. And remember, God had some words for them and a little bit of leprosy for Miriam to kind of enforce his point. And the truth of the matter is, when I look in the Old Testament uh, and, and wherever I see Aaron and Moses... Whenever there's a crisis, it's always Moses that's the mediator, is it not? Exodus 32 and the golden calf and whatever. It just seems like Moses is the guy who's the, ba- the one who bails them out. And so 
I don't know. He just seems like maybe even honorable mention is a little difficult for me. But he's the one. And and so I I come to this conclusion. I I confess, I got this line in 1970 at Dallas Seminary. Dr. Walford was sitting on the platform and he was not happy. But it it was the graduating class chapel. One of the Aldrich boys who should have known better, but I'm with them in spirit in that. He was sitting in the back with a fishing line that had been attached to a scroll that was hidden up above. He pulled that line and the scroll rolled down and said, is this the best the grace of God can do? (laughs) I just kind of liked it myself. And it somehow just fits Aaron, doesn't it? You're saying, is this the best the grace of God can do? And the answer is, oh no, it's far from the best. It's a starting point. But it sure makes better, look better, when you get to the book of of Hebrews. And so I say, thank God for Melchizedek, because it is not of the Aaronic order of priesthood that our Lord Jesus Christ will come, but rather from the order of Melchizedek. That strange figure, here's a shadow for you. He is mentioned, he is named once in Genesis. He is named then once in Psalm 110, verse 4. He is named eight times in the book of Hebrews in the section that we are just commencing. So this, this fellow Melchizedek is a fascinating guy, and, uh, and I think the grace of God definitely did, shall we say, better with respect to him. In terms of the structure of our text, we're looking at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. You know that the high priest has been introduced uh, just before in chapter 4, and already in the first four chapters, as we'll look at in just a moment. But here we're picking up in chapter 5, and the first four four verses are talking about the qualifications and the work of the the high priest so far as the Aaronic uh, order was concerned. And then we look in verses 5 through 10 at the qualifications of our Lord Jesus Christ, which obviously shows him to be not only fully qualified, But we could say, as the writer of the Hebrews does, he's better uh, by far. So let's look at the the, uh, texts that have already come to our attention in Hebrews to prepare us for this theme about the great high priest. This is a prominent theme. He is not catching us cold, so to speak, when we come to chapter 5. He has been preparing us for the high priestly work of our Lord Jesus. So in chapter 1... Uh, we read this in verse 3. The Son is the radiance of His glory and the representation of His essence, and He sustains all things by His powerful word. And so when He had accomplished cleansing for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word priest isn't mentioned, but it's clear that is, that is a dimension of what our Lord has done. And then at verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
whom we confess. Then in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. So let's look at the job description and the qualifications that are there in terms of what it would take to be a high priest. The job description is simply this, to represent men before God by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. But how does one do that? How does one approach God, a holy God, and make those sacrifices? The first qualification is humanity. He has to be selected from mankind. Remember that in in terms of the king in Deuteronomy 17... The king had to be selected from among his brothers. It's, it's clearly stated that it would be uh, an Israelite, and of course we know he would, lay, he would have to be of the tribe of Judah, uh, as time uh, makes that clear. But he has to be one of uh, humanity. He has to be, uh, have human flesh. And, uh, and not only does he have to be taken from among men, but we know that from the Aaronic order, he will have to come from a, he will have to be a descendant of, of Aaron. So it's not hard, it's not difficult with Aaron, it's not hard for me to visualizing meeting this qualification, right? Aaron is definitely a man. As Haddon Robinson used to say, you know, I'm not just clay up to my knees, I'm clay all the way up to my armpits. And, and, and certainly that's Aaron. We can all identify with him as being a, a man. Now the issue then becomes his purity and his ability to, act, to have access to God. If he is to mediate, if he is to offer sacrifices on men's behalf uh, and come before God, then how does a fellow like Aaron do that? <laughs> And, and I, you know, there, there are two things. I've always thought of the first one because it's so clear. And that is, he must offer sacrifices, right? He must offer a sacrifice so that on the Day of Atonement, he will offer a bull. And that bull will be a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of his family. Now, that's good. That's good. And it's, and it's picked up and emphasized later in Hebrews. But as I was reading in Exodus chapter 28, it seems to me that he also has to have the right attire. And, and I noticed this in Exodus 28, verses 3 and verse, and verse 4. It basically says that he has to wear these garments that he may minister as a priest to me. In other words, no clothes, no priest. Well, let me put it in a little different terms. There was reference made this morning to Adam and Eve who, when they were naked, they, they were ashamed and could not stand before God. And so God made clothing for them that would enable them to stand before God. When you look at Aaron and you see those pictures of, 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 of the high priest and what that looked like, he could not approach God apart from wearing those clothes. And it's almost as though you would say, God has provided a covering for this character 
because he would, he's just not suitable without this divine clothing that's been provided. So it isn't just something to make him look good. As a matter of fact, when you think about Moses, he doesn't, nobody talks about how great his clothes are, right? I mean, he's not the guy that's going to be on the fashion page for his clothes. And certainly guys like Elijah and Elisha, they're not going to be there on the fashion page. John the Baptist on the fashion page. But the high priest had better be properly dressed for his job. Because if he doesn't wear the right clothes, they'll drag him out of there. He won't walk out on his own legs. So this is very, very critical that he is properly attired and therefore he may approach God to make offerings for men. He is to be a man who has empathy and compassion. As a human being, you ought to be able to identify with fellow human beings. As a sinner, then Aaron should be able to empathize and to deal gently with other sinners. And I'm sorry, I made this note to myself, and it's a little snotty, but I said, Aaron should be oozing with compassion. (laughs) Would you say a guy who made a golden calf? I mean, how could he ever say to anybody, how could you ever do that? I mean, man, this guy has been there and he has done it, uh, so to speak. So I think we could assume that, that he would certainly have every cause to be a compassionate man with regard to other people's failures. And he is to be one who has authority. How does one go about their job, this incredibly important job, in effect, on his shoulders, so to speak, the weight of the sins of Israel fall in terms of his uh, sacrificial offering and work? How does that come about? And the text says, nobody appoints themselves for that job. God is the one who designates the high priest. He says... This is the one who's going to do the work. And, of course, that is precisely what happened uh, with Aaron. He was divinely designated for the work that he was given. So he had authority to carry out his job. When we come to the job description for our Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same. He is to represent uh, men before God by offering gifts and sacrifices on their behalf. But the qualifications is where our Lord Jesus shines, does he not? And he is certainly one who is better than Aaron. So let's look at those. The qualifications. One, humanity. That's what we were reading in chapter 2. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in order to be a high priest, had to take on humanity. His incarnation was a necessity. He came took upon his, added to his, to his undiminished deity, uh, untainted humanity, perfect humanity, blended those together in some way that we will uh, certainly find difficult to understand. But now he is one who is a representative for us as, as a man. I'm going to jump ahead of myself, but I was thinking about this at the Lord's Supper. It's interesting if you were to look at the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus made. We've got two symbols, right? We've got the symbol of the bread, which is our Lord Jesus' perfection, the absence of sin. And then the sacrifice is symbolized by the cup. When you look at the old covenant, what would you see? If it were Aaron, you would see a bull, 
right here, would you not? And a pile of clothes. Because that's what it took to, to, to make a sinner able to make that sacrifice. And it wasn't one that lasted permanently, as you know. It just put things off. It, it's sort of like our government's doing right now. It's just a buyout. For, for, for a collapsing system and you keep it going another year but there's vast difference between a piece of, of unleavened bread that says perfect and what Aaron had to do in terms of his imperfection to carry out the work well our Lord Jesus was human what about his purity and access before God that's what we were talking about I'm going to try something on you that I, I, I admit it's a new thought and new thoughts are risky things. But, but just think about this. And I, I really am not one predisposed to thinking about clothes. You know that. But, but think about this whole thing in, in the dimension of clothing. Adam and Eve are naked and they need a covering. Correct? And then you have uh, Aaron who is a sinner and he needs a covering in order to do his job as the high priest. So you have all this ornate garment that is, that is placed upon him, and without it he could not do his work. And then I got to thinking about our Lord, and it, it never occurred to me until now that our Lord was virtually naked when he did his work. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, I always thought to myself, sort of like, yuck. You know, I mean, it wasn't really, I mean, who wants to, to be up hanging on a, on a cross for all to look at without your clothes? But, but, but when you read the account, the account makes that quite plain, does it not? I mean, he may have had something, but it would be the kind of something that you would, you know, a Speedo or whatever that you'd get somewhere. It, it was, you were virtually naked, let's just put it that way. Whatever it was, you did not have your clothes because they sold them off of him. But don't you think it's kind of interesting and even symbolically significant that, the, that Adam and Eve needed clothing to stand before God, that Aaron needed an ornate clothing to do his priestly service, and Jesus didn't need a thing. Why? Because he had nothing to cover. Isn't that right? He didn't have to have a covering. He didn't have to offer a bull. He was sinless and he was perfect. And so in a sense, it's appropriate that he would die for men with nothing on because he alone could stand naked before God. And remember, this is the text that follows chapter 4 that says the word of God exposes us so that we stand naked before him in our need. He stands naked before God in his absence of need and represents us in our need. To me, I, I don't know why, that just makes sense as I think about the cross of our Lord Jesus. Was he able to have access to God? You bet. No barriers, no bulls, no fancy clothes. And in reality, if he is one who is to mediate between men and God, he is the God-man. I mean, what better person can there be than one who is God and who is man at the same time? He is the one, we are told in chapter 4, who passed through the heavens. He now is in the presence of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. If anyone has access to God, 
If anyone is in a position to mediate between men and God, it is he. And uh, I guess all I'm saying is, he is more than qualified. Is that not right? He makes Aaron look pale. Which isn't hard to do, but he makes him look pale anyway. Empathy and compassion. This is one of the, of the difficult texts because it, it, it speaks uh, elsewhere in Hebrews about his enduring the difficulties. But in our text, it talks about him and he says that he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him. Now, I've heard some people and I've read some people who, are, who I really respect and they tend to make this focus almost entirely on Gethsemane. And I, I confess to you, as, as I've been reading the text, I said to myself, that doesn't really make sense to me. I, I think one of the things that we're tempted to, to, to believe as we read that text is that he is crying out to God who could save him from death, that he is crying out to God and saying, don't let me die. Now, it's clear in the Gethsemane text that we have that he says, not my will, but your will be done. Now, in his humanity, who wants to die? And, and more than that, in his deity, who wants to take on the filth of the sin of mankind? That's the more horrifying thought, is to take on man's sin when you are the sinless son of God. That's the horrific thought. But it seems to me it says in the days of his um, humanity that he cried out in the days of his flesh. It isn't talking about one day. It seems to me that, that these are things that our Lord cried out uh, on an ongoing basis. Is Gethsemane an example of that? Yes. Is Gethsemane the epitome of it, the essence of it? I think not. I think our Lord Jesus Christ cries out and... It says he cries out to him who is able to deliver him from death. It, not, it does not say he cries out to be delivered from death. And some people cheat a little bit and they say what he really meant was to deliver me through death. Well, of course God did that. And by the way, if you think I'm out on the end of a tree, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce and, and uh, John Piper, as I read them, are, are basically in, in the same camp and saying it's more than just, more than just Gethsemane. Maybe that, but it's more. And one of the things that I think you see is, in one sense, when our Lord, in all of his life, he's crying out. He's crying out for God to help him in his distress, in his difficulty. What God the Father doesn't do is remove him from his distress. He brings him through it by his help and his grace. And isn't that what would comfort the Hebrews? If, 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 if the Hebrews were to read, Jesus was a special case. He cried out for help and God bailed him out and didn't let him suffer. Then what does that say for people that this book is written to who are going to suffer, who are going to cry out like the saints in Revelation who have been martyred? How long, Lord? How long before you, you, you fix this thing? And, and like the psalmist crying out to God, how long before you act? This is for people who are crying out to God and God doesn't rescue them from pain and suffering. He brings them through it. He is able to help those who are weak in their time of distress as we come to the throne of grace.
You know, I forgot something, by the way. As I use that term, the throne of grace, that comes from chapter 4. But isn't that an interesting thing to talk about thrones and grace? What he has done is he has linked kingship and priestship. And when you look at our text, when he cites these texts and says, what authority does our Lord Jesus have? He is divinely appointed. Would you not agree? But look at the text he uses to describe his uh, appointment. One comes from Psalm 2, verse 7, which is a text we've already used. And to what is he appointed in Psalm 2? Kingship. He's appointed to the throne. To what is he appointed in Psalm 110, verse 4? Priestship, according to the order of Melchizedek. Does Jesus have authority when the priest is the king? You better believe it. You better believe it. This is an interesting thing that the psalmist does. He takes these two texts and he merges them because not only is there a merging between our Lord's humanity and his deity, there is a merging between his function as priest and his function as king. When we come to him for help, we come to the king. Do you remember during David's reign? He didn't always do too well at that. And, and, and he wasn't always that accessible. But people came to the king when they needed help. We come to the king when we need help. But oftentimes what we need is the help of the priest. And he is the one who provides that. So he is the king. He is the high priest. He is divinely appointed. But his order is not the order of Aaron. He doesn't come from that tribe. He comes from the order of Melchizedek, a whole new order, which is a better order. We're not going to spend time going back to Genesis chapter 14 this time. But remember, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He is a prototype of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the shadow. Christ is the substance of that. And the writer of the Hebrews will make much of that. Well, I add one qualification that obviously is not true for Aaron, and that is longevity. (laughs) You always had the priest, you know, the priests were just dying off because they were humans. They were sinners. Here's the interesting thing about that. People benefited from the death of the high priest. Anybody remember how? Something happened at the death of the high priest. Everybody in the city of refuge... Who was, who was there under protection because of, of taking a, a human life but being, being found not guilty of murder. When the high priest died, people went, Yahoo! They're free. Isn't that, isn't that kind of an ironic thing? Well, let's say, isn't that a shadow of the fact that the death of the high priest in that sense brings freedom and liberty? Another way in which we see a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now that he has been raised, he has passed through the heavens, he is eternally the priest. So there is never again the death as there once was. Okay, let's talk about some things in conclusion. Tracing the flow of the argument. The writer to the Hebrews has been, has been preparing us for this section on the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus since the the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 3, he made purification for sins. Chapter 2, his incarnation 
enables him, facilitates so that now he can, as a as one who has taken on humanity, has lived in our shoes, he can he can represent us before uh, God. He can make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is our apostle and high priest, and he is the one who has passed through the heavens so that now our priest isn't distant from God. He is sitting, so to speak, beside him, and he is sitting as the son of God. And he is one who has entered into our weaknesses, and he has come through those victoriously without sin. So out of that, we should hold fast our confession, verse 14 of chapter 4. We should draw near with confidence, draw near with confidence to the great high priest. And we should realize that that the high priest of the Old Testament was just a shadow that prepared us for what was to come in in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and those qualifications in early chapter 5 are just set there so we can see how much more superior our Lord is to that human priesthood under Aaron. And then we see our Lord's credentials. Now, let's talk about some other things. John Piper had a really interesting and fascinating uh, set of comments, and this is in his message on Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 5, 3. He divides things a little differently. But, but he makes this comment. He, he says something like this. Why does God take so long to do things? <laughs> you ever think about that? I mean, you know, he, you know, he, he doesn't just instantly create something. He's done this redemption thing, and, and it would look like almost slow motion. Why does he take his time? And he says, one of the reasons why God does that is he is building these prototypes against which we can look and we can say, aha. Now, just suppose, from, from your background in mind, suppose that we did not have the Old Testament as a backdrop. And all of a sudden, we start reading about Jesus as our great high priest. Does that mean anything to us? I mean, do we have anything to relate that to? Not really. So what he has done in the Old Testament, amongst a number of things, what he has done in the Old Testament is he has told these stories, he has given us these institutions, he has laid out all of these prototypes, so that all of a sudden, when we come to the New Testament, we say, ah, high priest. I remember something about that. Now... We know it's better than Aaron, but it's like Aaron. That's my point. It's like Aaron. If we didn't have that, if we didn't have the tabernacle to talk about, if we didn't have the offerings to talk about, how would we know what this salvation is like? God has graciously taken his time to give us these things for backdrop so that we can look at the fulfillment in Christ and we say, yes, yes, that makes sense. Anyway, read, read his comments. They're really, they're really excellent. Note how he has linked kingship and priesthood eternally. Wow. Whom sh- Remember that song, Whom Should We Go To? To Whom Should We Turn? We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus, who is the king. Uh, I, I was thinking about, and this is, uh, sounds trite, but I was thinking about the, the high priesthood of our Lord as sort of God's help desk. We've had some occasions in, in the last few weeks where we needed to call, you know, where you have a certain number that you call uh, when you need help with this thing or that thing or with one kind of software or another or, or whatever, your utilities. And you call this number, and, and you know what happens? 
Well, what happens is you wait. First of all, you wait. And, and, and you don't get to talk to anybody. They talk to you. And they say, you know, if you need this, press one. If you need this, press two. If, you, if you're, you're dying, uh, press, you know, call 911. Don't bother us. You, you call them and, and get yourself off to the hospital. And you're thinking, wow, thanks for the help. And, 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 then, and then oftentimes what happens is you find that the help comes from far away, far away. And you're not always sure that you're communicating exactly on the same level and that we all understand what the problem is. And then they say, we'll take care of it. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you're all laughing because you know they don't. And, and so here you are. Now you go through that same whole loop over and over again. And, and you finally say, you know, am I ever going to get any help? Look at what this text says to us about help. It says to us in chapter 4 that the scriptures, not only history, but the scriptures examine our hearts. They do this MRI on us and they expose all of these areas of weakness that need attention. And it says that it turns us to our great high priest. When you look at his credentials and you realize he is not far away, he is near. He has become one of us. He's, he's spoken our language and he's, he's just a part of us. Who do we go to? We go to, as the song says, we go to the rock. We go to our great high priest. He is accessible. He is authoritative. He is legitimate. And he is near. We are told to draw near to him. Not because he's far away, but because we've been drifting away. Draw near to him who is the great high priest. i got to say one more thing about clothing, and I'll never talk about it again. <laughs> I hope my socks match this morning. Anyway, that's why I'm standing behind this thing. You can't see. But actually, my wife picked them out. They do. But I was thinking about this in Revelation chapter 1. We talked about Jesus and his being offered up naked as the sacrifice for us. Now I was thinking about how our Lord looks today. Verse 13 of chapter 1 of Revelation. And in the middle of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in all of its strength. And I saw him and I fell at his feet like a dead man. Here's the thing I'm trying to get to. Revelation is really calling us to the same thing that Hebrews is. It says in chapters 2 and chapters 3, To him who overcomes... I will give this and I will give that, right? It's spoken to Christians in the church to help them overcome. That's exactly what Hebrews is about. Hebrews says that we ought to go to the great high priest. And I guess here's what I'm trying to say. Our great high priest died naked for our sins. But he isn't naked now. Look what he's wearing. It makes Aaron's outfit look really pale. He is clothed in his glory and his power. 
He is the one to whom we are to flee. And that's the picture Revelation gives to us. He is the one who is in heaven, who is telling us where we have needs, and He is calling upon us to draw near to Him. He is knocking at the door. He wants to come and have fellowship with us. We need to draw near to Him. Now, for some of us, that's drawing near as a Christian. I found Billy Nation's call this week so exciting because it's a perfect picture of Hebrews. Is it not? Here is one who by his own words said, I have been drifting away and God has brought me near. What sweeter words. What sweeter words to hear than that. And there may be Christians here today who have been in their hearts, if not in their actions, drifting. Drifting from his word drifting from devotion to Him. And, and, the, and the, the message is clear. Draw near to Him. He is the great high priest. Not just the one who made the atonement for your sins so you could be saved and get to heaven. He is the one who helps us in our moments of need and weakness. And I've got to say, every one of you can think in your minds right now, you know where you're weak and you know where your needs are. And he is the one to whom we should turn for that. But there may be someone here this morning who has never really trusted in Jesus Christ. It ought to have been you and me who hung on that cross and paid an eternity of hell for all we have done against God. But Jesus Christ stood in our place. He made atonement for our sins. And we're called upon in that first and initial way to just cast ourselves upon him. He is the one who gives mercy and help in time of need. Not reproach, but grace. So we approach the king on the throne of grace for mercy and help in our time of need. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. How marvelous he is and how vastly superior to any human counterpart. May each of us cling to him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.